0: Nancy Pelosi lands in Taiwan, China goes ballistic, but none of this means anything to stock market investors. It's Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. This is The Kelly Letter Podcast. I'm Jason Kelly. On Tuesday night, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi arrived in Taiwan, defying warnings from China to stay away. It was the highest level visit by a U.S. official in 25 years. Pelosi is the second in the presidential order of succession, just after the vice president of the United States, currently Kamala Harris. The order of succession after the president goes vice president, speaker of the House of Representatives, then president pro temp of the Senate. So Nancy Pelosi, as Speaker of the House of Representatives, is number two in that. So she's right up there in in U.S. officialdom. And that's why it was a big deal that she decided to go to Taiwan. Now, of course, China claims Taiwan as part of its territory. But Taiwan says it's independent and it's an ally of the United States and it's a democracy and it's generally a great place as opposed to communist-led China. So this is the the, the age-old standoff going on here, age-old and modern times. And because of this dispute, Beijing says that visits by foreign government officials show recognition of the island's sovereignty. And it gets up in arms about this because China claims as one of its primary goals the reunification of Taiwan. We'll come back to that a little later in this discussion. But that's the basic idea. Taiwan is ours. It's actually our our very same country. And how dare anybody recognize it as an independent country, even though it's a democracy and we're, we're communist. Doesn't matter. Beijing says it's part of China. Taiwan says it's not. The U.S. recognizes Taiwan as an ally, while also weirdly recognizes the one China policy. But Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, and this really bothered Beijing which has been issuing warnings for several days now. For example, it warned of resolute and strong measures if Pelosi went ahead with the trip. And she went anyway, and good for her. And I should just mention at this point in this, that even though this is about impact on the stock market, it's also a very personal issue to me as somebody who's lived in Japan for more than 20 years, right in the, right in the zone of this conflict, have experienced China up front and close, seen it through the eyes of of American friends and Japanese friends and Taiwanese friends indeed. And I am not an unbiased third party observer. I am on the Taiwanese side of this and I back the American support of Taiwan. So you will feel throughout this discussion, my anger toward China at the treatment of Taiwan and just the, the direction that China has taken over the last quarter century and even a little bit longer and the, the bad things it's doing around the world. So this is not a purely numbers driven spreadsheet motivated analysis of this saying that, that this this conflict with Taiwan and between Taiwan and China in which the U.S. and our allies are involved means nothing to Google earnings, for example. This is not going to be that dispassionate bottom line driven discussion because there's, there's more to it than that. But it does connect to the stock market, and I am going to address that as we go. But I just want to warn you up front that I am not an unbiased third-party observer. So Nancy Pelosi went anyway, and I say good for her. She stayed at the, the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Taipei, a great hotel and a great city. Two buildings in that capital city lit up LED displays with words of welcome, including the iconic Taipei 101 building, once the tallest building in the world, it had a sign on it reading, Welcome to Taiwan, Speaker Pelosi. And another one read, TW, heart mark, US. In a statement released after her arrival, Pelosi called the visit a sign of America's unwavering commitment to supporting Taiwan's democracy. Quote from that statement here is. America's solidarity with the 23 million people of Taiwan is more important today than ever as the world faces a choice between autocracy and democracy, end quote. Hear, hear, Isn't it nice now and then to just call things what they are instead of beating around the bush and saying all viewpoints matter and, well, they've got a good point and we've got a good point. Sometimes you go through the various points, you put them on balance, and you realize one side is right. And it feels good to talk about that concept outside the context of American binaryism recently and all the tribalism in American politics. This is the global stage. And China is always making its points from the Department of of Rhetoric and etc. propaganda over there. But ultimately, Pelosi is right. The world needs to choose between democracy and autocracy, and look what happens when you let autocracy run wild. You get Putin stomping around Ukraine, committing atrocities. Long ago, you had even bigger atrocities. In the future, we may get future atrocities because of an unwillingness to push back for fear of upsetting the apple cart, hurting feelings, stepping on toes, and so on. So I, for one, was very happy to see Nancy Pelosi say, I don't care what warnings China is issuing. I have every right to visit our ally, Taiwan, and I'm going. And she did. And she even made that statement saying the world faces a choice between autocracy and democracy. I'm not a a general fan of Nancy Pelosi, to tell you the truth, but I love this. Way to go, Nancy. That's how I feel about it. And that that means more coming from me because I'm not a fan of her at all, to be honest. But wow, what a great move this was. So the Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi issued a counterstatement from which, quote, some American politicians are playing with fire on the issue of Taiwan. This will definitely not have a good outcome. The exposure of America's bullying face again shows it as the world's biggest saboteur of peace end quote. Statements like Wang's are overwrought to the point of destroying China's tough guy street cred. There are all kinds of overblown warnings from China, not, not just around this, this one incident. If you can even call this an incident, she's visiting to just meet with people in, in Taipei. This is hardly a provocation or a change of policy or anything, and it's not even unprecedented. I'll come back to that more in a moment. But anyway, this is some uh, a rundown of things that China has said from the Associated Press report of Pelosi's visit to Taipei. It vowed to resolutely thwart external interference and Taiwan-independent separatist attempts. The, the, the Chinese foreign minister, again, that's Wang Yi, called this Washington's Betrayal quote on the Taiwan issue. he says it's bankrupting our national credibility. And and, and paraphrase, actually, that wasn't a direct quote. Uh, So America's ruining its national credibility by by weighing in on the Taiwan issue, supposedly. That's how it's characterizing Nancy Pelosi's visit. Just going through the, the AP report here. China says its military will never sit idly by and the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson, a different one, talks about how uh, this is, be, this is a, a provocation and asks how dangerous it would be if the visit actually happens. This is before the visit, of course, and says that China will, will take countermeasures that would be justified and necessary in the face of Washington's unscrupulous behavior. Um, someone from the standing committee in, of China's legislature said the trip severely violated the one China principle. And that's Beijing's claim to be the sole government of both mainland China and Taiwan. Uh, Wang Tingyu, a legislator with the Democratic Progressive Party, wrote on Twitter, in defense of Taiwan, China thinks by launching a multiple domain pressure campaign against Taiwan, the people of Taiwan will be intimidated, but they are wrong. So that's on the Taiwan side, the pro-Taiwan independent side. You get the picture. This is how it goes through, through reports everywhere. This happened to be the AP News rundown of it. All kinds of those types of threats, ta- calling this a provocation, a violation of sovereignty, playing with fire, characterizing it this way. And then one of, one of the best poll quotes is when, when another member of, of China's foreign ministry, the spokesperson Hua Chunying, told reporters in Beijing on Tuesday, quote, The U.S. and Taiwan have colluded to make provocations first, and China has only been compelled to act out of self-defense. End quote. Provocations? I mean, come on. Nancy Pelosi, an elderly stateswoman from the United States, stops in to visit allies as part of a multi-ally visit throughout Asia. And that's a provocation. She's not advocating an attack by Taiwan. She's it, it, Nothing along those lines whatsoever. And then China's going to act out of self-defense. Defending what? Now, it would say, China would say, defending its territorial integrity, that the United States has violated its sovereign space by visiting Taiwan against Beijing's wishes. And of course, that gets back to the whole disagreement of whether Beijing even has legitimate control, l- legitimate domain over, over Taiwan. That's the whole dispute, Right. Uh, It's a messy situation. I don't know why the U.S. ever agreed to recognize the one-China policy, but it did. And at least in this case, though, Nancy Pelosi punched on through and visited our ally anyway, and it's being characterized as a provocation, and China will have to defend itself. Self-defense. Which means what, exactly? When we get down to brass tacks, what does China actually do in its self-defense? All it ever does, just like North Korea, launch missiles into the strait, fly airplanes around the space, try to edge up to other countries' territories with its ships. Nothing concrete ever really happens. It's a bunch of ruffling of bully feathers out on out on the, the playground is what it feels like. And keep that in mind, too. This will be a theme throughout this. Now keep in mind, though, that is coming back to this idea of the U.S., Putting, colluding with Taiwan for provocations and China's going to act out of self-defense. No U.S. policy changed. This is not a, a repudiation of the one China policy. And congressional leaders have every right to visit the United States allies. And the Speaker of the House has visited Taiwan before without incident. This reaction is new. Members of Congress have visited Taiwan even earlier this year. So the, the, the height of this dispute seems to be, well, it's not just a U.S. visit. It's a U.S. visit by the second person in the line of succession to the White House should the office be vacated. And President Biden made it clear that it's not in his purview to tell the Speaker of the House where she can and can't go. It's a co-equal branch of government. And he doesn't have reign over Congress, unlike the case in Strongman Ruled China, getting back to the basic distinction here. And yes, of course, China rather disputes that Taiwan is independent, but the practical treatment from the world shows that it is. The semiconductor trade is, is always example number one in these discussions. And the world's dependence upon Taiwanese semiconductors makes it clear that most of the world sees Taipei as distinct from Beijing. Because rivals to, it didn't have to be this way, but nonetheless, it's being stacked up with the usual access, access and allies posture on the world stage and nobody's going to be buying semiconductors from a spying foreign rival. So the fact that the world is willing to depend so heavily on semiconductors from Taiwan shows that the world is just kind of, you know, winking and nodding toward this idea that yeah, yeah, okay, sure, one China policy, but whatever. They're totally different from you. They're they're physically separated from mainland China. They are a democracy. They're way more innovative, and et cetera, et cetera. So, okay, fine. China disputes that Taiwan is independent, but obviously the rest of the world, wink, nod, knows that it is an independent country. So the main thing from China really is this military showboatism, and only weaklings do this. Think of Baghdad Bob boasting of non-existent Iraqi success in the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Remember that? Oh, everything's going well. U.S. soldiers are committing suicide en masse. There aren't even tanks in in the city. And it was it became comical after a while. That's why he got the nickname Baghdad Bob. And 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 the threats were masterfully produced rhetorical turns that it was just hilarious. It's like something out of Monty Python. And then and then later than that, and and constantly really, is Kim Jong-un in North Korea constantly vowing to annihilate the world and so on, even though basically any country with a decent military could squash any of that effort. You know, China brags about its DF-21 medium-range ballistic missile being able to sink U.S. aircraft carriers and even promoted this nickname of aircraft carrier killer. And it does tout other military advantages, which have become much, much more impressive in in recent decades. But it does this with empty rhetoric, at least so far. Whenever push comes to shove, China folds and... And this is how it has operated for years. It complains, threatens, and then folds. And we saw this even with uh, Japanese fishing vessels, um, U.S. map-making vessels. I remember an incident a few years ago that was, was uh, covered heavily in Asian media where a U.S. mapping vessel was going along. It's an unarmed ship. It's just a, you know, it's an administrative thing, updating maps of the ocean floor and so on. It was cruising along doing its work, and it was threatened by Chinese destroyers, and it was it stopped and it was signaling them to let us go through and the Chinese kept intimidating it. So the map-making vessel called for help from the U.S. Navy and some destroyers came up, or one destroyer at least, and right away the Chinese ships just skedaddled. And we've seen things play out like that again and again. So it's it's really unclear how much technology China really has or whether it's waiting for the quiet moment to attack. But at least this this pattern we're seeing right now we have seen many times, the complain, threaten, fold. Um, Here's another one. In October, 2015, China summoned the U.S. ambassador to say that U.S. naval maneuvers in the South China Sea represented a direct military challenge to Beijing's territorial claims. Even though the South China Sea is an international waterway, it doesn't violate any international law to be there. The same way the U.S. didn't complain when, when US, uh, Chinese naval vessels, rather, came within U.S. territorial waters near Alaska, but didn't violate any international law, and the incident passed without claim. But China just very kindergartenish about all this stuff, and uh, if anybody's elbow bumps them in any way, you know, the, they hit the ceiling. And so while it's doing so again, and some people say we need to fear that World War III is starting again, we seem to hear this message a lot think of initial reactions to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Somehow we're always on the brink of nuclear annihilation. I guess it makes a good headline. And, uh, you know, anytime any of these nutcase leaders out there start talking about annihilation consequences like you've never seen, raining fire from the sky, you will regret, you're playing with fire, and all the other turns of phrase they use, outcomes that you were on the brink of nuclear war, and Uh, you know the doomsday clock is almost at midnight and all that stuff i mean it just happened with the invasion of ukraine right (laughs) back in in february i was addressing this very issue and saying i i doubt very much we're on the edge of nuclear war so far that's been true let's hope that stays true now coming back to stocks because that's that's our purview around here even though this is intertwined with views of the world and uh, geopolitics Remember, the stock market's long-term track record exhibits rising two-thirds of the time. Okay, now with that, I want to give you a tool, a lens through which to view all news to understand how much you should be worried about your stock market portfolio. Once you keep in mind this very useful track record of rising two-thirds of the time on the stock market, the, the U.S. stock market, Wall Street, once you keep that in mind, just ask which parts of the news cycle are on repeat. Is the current news story that's bothering you, potentially, something that you've seen before? And if you're too young to have seen many news stories before, could you look up in a timeline of news events and find similar events in the past? Can you find something similar in history books? If so, you can dismiss it out of hand as a non-factor to the stock market, right? Because all these repeating events that go back as, as far as you care to look have 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 been going on forever, and there's every reason to think they'll keep going on forever, yet stocks have risen two-thirds of the time. And to this specific moment, there there might be a certain pressure that could make a difference, but few investors are actually investing for this specific moment. There's usually a longer-term goal in mind, and long-term goals are much better served with a level head through that long term. And if you jump in and out every time there's a headline that says, this could be World War III, you're not going to be doing yourself any favors performance wise. So remember that trick. Just ask yourself, is this current story that's blindsided me, that's occupied media for the moment and has elevated my heart rate, is this the type of story that has repeated in the past? If the answer is yes, calm yourself down, because the stock market has risen two thirds of the time through similar events like that in the past. I find this device to be very useful when analyzing news. And another little tip, almost all news repeats. Almost all of it. It's amazing. Threats of war, actual war, natural catastrophes, financial scandals, and so on. It's all on repeat. So, have they always happened? Yes. Will they ever stop happening? No. Therefore, they're non-factors to the stock market. Now, with Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and China's bellicose threats, Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine, the current worry is war. Threat of it, engagement in it, but it usually fades away, no matter how scary it looks at the time, and even an ongoing war. I mean, look at the Ukraine war right now the brave Ukrainians fighting against the invading Russians. And this script has been going since February. And stocks have not done well this year, but I, I believe we can all agree that the main pressure on stocks has had nothing to do with geopolitics. It's been all about inflation, the, the re- response of the Federal Reserve to inflation with rising interest rates, whether that's going to cause a recession, and so on. It hasn't been directly attributed to the war. There are some pressures. I'll come back to those in a minute. But there's not a direct connection. that war starts, therefore stocks collapse. But somehow it's presented that way often, often. No matter how scary it looks, though, it fades. For instance, these these live fire drills from North Korea, you know how those seem to come up every, I don't know, six months or so? Um, Let's give an example of that. It's not just a recent thing. Here we go. Uh, CNN. On April 26, 2017, right, so more than five years ago, quote from a news story there, U.S. warships and submarines are on the move. North Korea has carried out its largest ever live fire drill. Analysts fear the situation is a tinderbox that could be set off by a small spark, end quote. Get out of stocks? You would think so that's sort of the implication even though there's kind of a giant therefore what exactly to me on my morning walk to make sure the salt lick is in place you know it does get a little comical when you look at headlines and look at your own life and realize that the, the the leaking faucet has a bigger impact on my day than whatever tensions are rising somewhere else but anyway in that case of april 2017 following the the tinderbox ready to be set off by a small spark nothing happened the S&P 500 rose 13% from there to year-end, and not one strategist mentioned North Korea war risk in their year-end summaries. It's because geopolitics is a coincidental factor, not a causal one. Now, we we do have to acknowledge that some market pressures come from war, but some market pressures come from all over the place. All right, that, That's why the stock market is unpredictable, because there aren't just... There isn't just one and there aren't just two or three pressures on the market. There are hundreds every day and no news story can cover them all and even if it could it wouldn't do any good. It would be analysis paralysis and because you wouldn't be able to figure out where all the competing pressures were going to even out. That's why it's unpredictable. And we do have to toss into that mix war and geopolitics. That is a pressure. It's just not an isolated all important one. But here's an example. Russia's invasion of Ukraine caused sanctions on Moscow that contributed to higher oil prices. Those contributed to inflation, and central banks are now fighting inflation with higher interest rates, and those higher interest rates do impact stocks. So you could make an argument that the Ukraine war was a key factor in the U.S. stock market performance this year. But I think that would be a stretch. Inflation was baked in before the Ukraine invasion. The The, the Federal Reserve was talking about it a year before that invasion, and uh, it, it it got that wrong. And I th- I thought the Fed was getting it right, saying that inflation was a transitory factor after the pandemic. The Fed was wrong. I was wrong to think that the Fed had gotten that right. It was not a transitory factor. And one year later, it was clear that it wasn't a transitory factor and that the Fed was going to have to combat higher inflation with higher interest rates. And about that time, Russia invaded Ukraine, and that contributed to the already existing inflationary pressure. So this is a good example of of war contributing pressure, but not really causing the whole thing and not, not delivering a direct impact to the stock market. And we saw a little bit of a direct impact ahead of Nancy Pelosi's visit. Taiwan's stock market did fall about 2%, and some analysts blamed it on geopolitical tensions. But it's hard to say, and even if the tension was the reason for the slide, remember that stocks tend to shrug off geopolitics fairly quickly. I covered this earlier in the year, at the beginning of the Ukraine invasion. The basic idea is that stocks usually rise after a big geopolitical event. They will sometimes flutter down ahead of it, and that most, most students of stock market history attribute that to the uncertainty. How is this gonna go? What, How much spending is gonna be involved? But basically just the uncertainty. It's not so much that, uh-oh, bullets are gonna fly, bombs are gonna go off, so stocks are gonna sink. It's more like, hmm, I'm not sure where this is gonna go. Just in case it doesn't go the right way, I'm gonna get out of stocks a little bit here to protect myself. So it's probably the uncertainty ahead of a war or some other sort of geopolitical event that that presses stocks down a little bit in advance, but then they, they come back after that, which, which shouldn't be shocking given that very useful pattern I talked about earlier that stocks rise two-thirds of the time. So there is a, a built-in preference, I suppose, to rise, a built-in upward pressure in stocks so that after a downward time caused by any factor, but if it is caused by the onset of a geopolitical event, then, then after it starts, the uncertainty fades and stocks come back up because they're like fishing bobbers held underwater. They want to go up. And, and then they come back. And here's some, some proof of that. Back in February when I was doing research about the, the potential impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I came across this Reuters report that Glenview Trust Company's chief investment officer, Bill Stone, had looked at market moves around past geopolitical crises for clues as to what investors might expect next. And he was specifically uh, uh, putting this in the context of Ukraine's invasion from Russia. Bill Stone looked at 29 different geopolitical crises starting with World War II and found that on average, you ready for this? Stocks were higher three months after a geopolitical shock. And after 66% of events, they were higher after only one month. Now I find that 66% stat to be darn interesting in light of the two thirds of the time stocks rise. Factoid, right? This comes up frequently, frequently. And it is your guiding light through all types of news analysis. What are stocks going to do? Probably rise. That's where the odds are. Two out of three ain't bad, right? Quote from Bill Stone, the odds that stocks will be higher increases as time passes after the geopolitical event. In addition, stocks sometimes jump sharply after a crisis, so getting out of the market could have significant opportunity costs, end quote. And that's getting back to the idea that when, when stocks are pushed down, it's like pushing a fishing bobber underwater, they want to go back up, so as the uncertainty around the crisis fades away, then they will start going up, even if the war is not over. Stocks have done well through extended wars, sometimes very extended wars. And the Ukraine war, for example, is still going on and stocks have have uh, exhibited a recovery over the last month or so. We don't know if that is going to be sustained. But I I, I think the real takeaway is just that stocks do what they do, regardless of what's going on elsewhere. They they sometimes go up, they sometimes go down. Over the long term, it's mostly up. That's why they work as one of the best long-term investments you can use for your future. And while that long term is playing out, all kinds of pressures are put into the world from all kinds of corners. And the takeaway for you as a stock market investor is Do not change your stock market strategy because China is doing what China always does. Threaten, threaten, threaten. I'm glad the U.S. criticizes autocratic communist China. In my view, it's worth the geopolitical fallout to call China out for what it is. A bullying autocrat that lies, cheats, and steals its way ahead in the world. I very much like what Huang Chao Yuan, a, a 53-year-old business owner who watched Nancy Pelosi's plane land, she's Taiwanese, I like what she told the New York Times. Quote from her, I am quite excited about her visit today because it's an example that shows the United States does not need to discuss with the CCP, that's the Chinese Communist Party, she can come here if she wants and whoever Taiwan invites can come here. This incident demonstrates Taiwan's independence. End quote. It does, and of course that's China's entire beef, with its authoritarian leader, Xi Jinping, making it clear that unifying Taiwan with China is one of his primary goals. But tough luck. At some point, the world needs to say, China, you're wrong. You're misbehaving and we're not going to keep letting it slide until you're a rampaging giant ruining the world order. The West should have never helped China grow so big and threatening without setting up controls along the way. Long ago, short-term economic interests took precedent over instilling democratic values in China, and we are seeing the fallout of that today. And of course, none of those people are being held accountable. They booked their profits. It could all be in the name of helping this developing country develop, helping this emerging market to emerge. Well, it sure did, and uh, thanks for that, everybody who let it get to this size and this disposition while being an authoritarian-ruled country. This is a really pleasant thing that we get to deal with for the next who knows how long. We have a monster on our hands now, and of course that monster is buddied up with another monster, Russia, currently committing atrocities in Ukraine. The same co-monster, by the way, that brought us the Korean War of 1950. Did you know that? These, These... alliances between the bad guys have been around so long it's 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 strange to me actually how the good guys and bad guys continue being roughly the same team over the years it's the little little background here in case you're not familiar with the korean war it doesn't it doesn't get nearly the respect it deserves it was a serious war and it just came shortly after after World War II, which is why I think it gets kind of lost in the the, the looming shadow of that much greater war. But the Korean War was a legitimate and serious and important war in its own right. The Soviets backed the North Korean army in an invasion of South Korea. So there's Putin's predecessors at work for you. The UN and the U.S. rushed in to help South Korea, there you go again. Of course, the U.S. there. And we always it's always presented that way, the U.N. and the U.S. Well, what percentage of soldiers were supplied by whom? 90% came from America. But nonetheless, it was an international effort, the U.N. and the U.S., helping South Korea repel the Soviet-backed North Korean army. What does China do? Which, which side do you suppose China would take in this? The U.S. helping the South, the Soviet Union, the predecessor to Russia helping the North, Which way is China going to go? Of course, north. So it amasses troops on the border and counter-invades South Korea. The result of this three-year war were more than 3 million people dead, probably quite a few more when you get civilians in there, possibly up to 5 million. Korea evidently permanently divided. And now Kim Jong Pineapple Head firing off missiles whenever he gets bored as dictator baby. And I characterize it that way because we in Japan are so sick and tired of that kid causing so much trouble, and wish so much so that somebody would just take this guy out, get that country on the right path, and stop this multi-decade nonsense. And all of that should sound familiar. Russia and China teamed up to help bad guy North Korea attack good guy South Korea, who was helped by the West led by America. Well, earlier this year, who did Russia ask for help with its Ukraine invasion? China, of course who's helping Ukraine? The West, led by America, of course. And the China monster is now so big that an American victory in a war for Taiwan is no longer guaranteed. I would personally call it probable, and that's after talking with with some military analyst friends of mine in the West and a couple people I know in China and in Taiwan who have have assessed it very carefully. I don't have any sort of inside connection, no sort of behind the intelligence wall information to share with you, but just talking with people who are familiar with it from a civilian foothold, it seems to me that America still has the weight of probability on its side, but that whatever sort of edge America has is shrinking by the year and China is not getting any friendlier. And just to give you an idea of how worrying the situation is, um, the China military expert Oriana Skylar Mastro made this idea plain that America's advantage is shrinking in a May 27th op-ed just this year in the New York Times. She wrote, quote, simply put, the United States is outgunned. At the very least, a confrontation with China would be an enormous drain on the U.S. military without any assured outcome that America could repel all of China's forces, end quote. One example from her case is that the United States has access to just two U.S. air bases within unrefueled combat radius of the Taiwan Strait. Both of those are in Japan, and that's compared with China's thirty-nine air bases within 500 miles of Taipei. That's quite an imbalance there, and there are, there are other imbalances as well that have the the Taiwan side pretty worried about what the situation would be if. Beijing finally decided it's time to retake Taiwan by force. Nonetheless, Oriana Skylar Mastro, the writer rather of that that New York Times op-ed, advises the U.S. to, quote, stand firm against Chinese intimidation of Taiwan while working to ease Beijing's anxieties by demonstrating a stronger U.S. commitment to a peaceful resolution of the Taiwan issue, end quote. At least Nancy Pelosi did her part. Nowhere in China is there an ounce of gratitude for all the help the world gave it on its rise to power. None at all. I've seen this in other parts of life too. You help somebody out, you give them a leg up, and as as soon as they're doing better, they they forget everything you did. You don't get any credit for it. You certainly don't get any help back in in return. Not always, but I've just seen this dynamic repeat even on the, the micro scale of my personal life all the way up to this macro scale of the world coming together to help emerging China emerge, help them do well, because they'll, they'll pay it back with friendliness and cooperation later. Uh-huh, look how that's gone. So now, from its new exalted position in the global pecking order, China has turned itself toward mischief. I have to say, the chief leg up that China received was probably from President Clinton who normalized trade relations with China in October 2000, and that paved the way for China to join the World Trade Organization in 2001. How's trade gone? Pretty well for China. Trade with the U.S. rose from $5 billion in 1980, this is according to the U.S. Trade Representative, $5 billion in 1982, $615 billion in 2022. And oh, so much of that profit has gone into making the world a better place, hasn't it? No, no, it's gone into how do we screw Taiwan? How do we screw Hong Kong? How do we clamp down on our people who won't toe the line? How do we cause trouble? How do we get closer to the world's biggest bad guy? It's just unbelievable. And why Clinton thought this was a good idea is beyond me. Was he unaware that China calls its Korean War campaign Resist America and Assist Korea? That's the name of that campaign in China's history books. And the country's enmity toward America is blatant. Anyway, what did America get in return for helping China all these decades? Theft, threats, and currency manipulation. Great. Could have been different. I found a September 2005 speech by then U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Robert B. Zolick. He called on China to serve as a responsible stakeholder in world affairs and use its influence to draw nations such as Sudan, North Korea, and Iran into the international system. So much for that. Now, threats of war and possibly eventual actual war are what China brings to the world stage. This year, on May 26th, Secretary of State Antony Blinken called China the, quote, most serious long-term challenge to the international order, end quote, and contrasted the country's authoritarianism with America's commitments to advancing democracy and human rights. You can glean from this rundown, Nancy Pelosi's touchdown in Taiwan is not going to end anything. It's, it's fanning flames. The rhetoric is through the roof. But the the bigger takeaway for you when this fades from headlines in two weeks or one week or by tomorrow you know how the cycle goes these days the the bigger chance for you in this is to to reaffirm your commitment to understanding that the stock market is a generally rising price line and it does that through all types of events even these recurring ones and this this taiwan conflict is going to go on a long time it may eventually turn into a hot war we can't say for sure how that hot war would end, but I would bet that even if it does go hot and it turns into a a, a major power conflict, the stakes aren't aren't high enough in direct relation to the stock market to cause a long term setback. The biggest risk, in my view, would be if if this happened soon, China won and got all the semiconductor technology from Taiwan. And the rest of the world, including the U.S. military, was, was left with an empty bag as China ramped up its military technology and, and the rest of the world struggled to catch up with what Taiwan's been doing in semiconductors for the next decade or so. That, that type of, of technology switcheroo would be a very big deal. And I can't claim to know the, the extent of the impact of that, but it would be quite bad on all things semiconductor related and I'm pretty sure you have a good idea for how much of the tech world depends on semiconductors. Hint: a lot. So if that if that all fell into the hands of Xi Jinping, and he and Vlad got together over a poker game and decided what can we do with this newfound advantage, I'm guessing it wouldn't be something that put smiles on our faces. And even as stock investors, we could we could see some more direct impact from that. And especially for for us in the Kelly letter with 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 a significant exposure to the NASDAQ 100, a tech-driven, wonderful index, but that would be a vulnerability for us. So that's an example of a of one short-term direct pressure, and I think there would be other sort of indirect ripples of the type I talked about earlier. It's definitely not a zero risk. I'm not claiming that at all. It's just that we've seen far bigger risks, even of the warring and other geopolitical variety over the years, and the stock market has still maintained that two-thirds tendency to rise. So while, while China's schemes are terrible for global harmony, they're not of primary concern to you as a stock market investor. As a citizen of this planet, though, I would submit that the issue is of grave concern. And that what happens to Taiwan speaks volumes to what's going to happen to the future direction of the world. If Russia is able to just storm into Ukraine, kill people, and take what it wants, and China is able to just storm into Taiwan and crush the democracy the same way it did with Hong Kong, and the rest of the world just politely stands by, well, we can all be called Neville Chamberlain, and suddenly we've got a serious crisis on our hands, and history is repeating yet again. Let's hope it doesn't come to that, but that's the way to look at this issue as as one of geopolitical significance, societal significance, and the way of the world type of significance, not bottom line, your portfolio significance. Thank you for listening. This is the Kelly Letter Podcast, and I am Jason Kelly. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast from any of the links I put up for you at jasonkelly.com to places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and, and others of that ilk. Also at my website, JasonKelly.com, you'll find links to everything mentioned in this episode, including the U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi arrives in Taiwan defying Beijing. That was the AP News Report where I got some of those China bullying comments. Um, and that was yeah, AP. A CNN article, the North Korea rhetoric is angry, but is conflict closer? That was that April 2017 incident. The Reuters report what history says about geopolitics and the market from February of this year. And from the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, you can see U.S.-China trade facts, including how much the trade has ramped up in China since the U.S. helped it become a less emerging economy and one that's already thoroughly emerged. A New York Times story, actually that op-ed by Oriana Skylar Mastro, Title, Biden says we've got Taiwan back, but do we? That's the moment where she doubts the US advantages and gives a rundown of why we really better wake up to the threat that we face around Taiwan. And finally, that speech by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken of, in May of this year. The title of his speech was The Administration's Approach to the People's Republic of China. All of those are waiting for you in the show notes post at jasonkelly.com. And remember, there is a comment section there where you can interact with me and your fellow listeners and the entire podcast archive up to five episodes with this one. So we're cruising right along and thank you for your support. And if you'd like to give a little more support, I'd love it if you left a review wherever you review podcasts. More than that, I'd like to bring you on board the Kelly Letter, which has been doing quite well. You can see our performance chart at jasonkelly.com. Still have a long way to go in this recovery and not guaranteed that there won't be another setback, but we, like history, have been through this kind of thing many times before, and a familiar pattern is playing out, and it has been a profitable one for us in the past. No reason to think it won't be this time. So please subscribe today at jasonkelly.com. We'll get you started with those onboarding materials so you can start your own market beating sync plan i do send new letters every sunday morning so you'll get one quite soon if you're not ready for any of this and do nothing else please at least join the free list at the top right of jasonkelly.com that'll keep you in touch with me more for some good information there's an empty field there just waiting for your email address that's it enter it enter it click sign up and you'll be on your way current subscribers thank you as always for your support I will see you Sunday.